if you would, look with me in Ephesians chapter 6. We looked at verses 10 to 12 last week. If we could just look at that text again as we read it. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those times we are to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And we ask that this passage would be the very means of sanctification by which Paul intended it as he penned it by the Spirit. I pray that the word today would be granted illumination by the Spirit of the word and that we, the people of God, may have ears to hear and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today is the 77th anniversary of the battle at Normandy, famously known as, as D-Day, which resulted in the Allied liberation of Western Europe from the control of Nazi Germany. Now, the battle began when uh, some 156,000 American, Canadian, and British troops, averaging 20 years old, mind you, landed on the five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of the fortified coast of France's Normandy. 90%, in fact, of those first boats 90% of those soldiers to hit the beach from those first boats did not see to make it to see the, the second day, the next day of the battle. But despite the high cost of lives, and it was the bloodiest battle in history, historians all say that it marked the beginning of the end of World War II. And though it would not officially end, until May 8th of 1945, the next year in Europe, known as VE Day. So even though the, the crucial battle 
had been won, that is, the battle at Normandy, the Allies would not, in the next months, they would not disarm. There were still battles to be fought. For instance, the Battle of the Bulge, which began in December of 44. But the Allies, and this is so important, were fighting from a posture of victory. And so between D-Day and V-Day, there were battles, but the war had essentially been won. All right? Now, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is D-Day for Christ church. On the cross and in his resurrection, the essential battle is won. The war is won, really. And so our outcome is fully secure. That's why we shouldn't fret by what we see in the culture. The culture is just being the culture. Our battle has been won. Our war has been won. And yet, there are daily battles of the bulge, aren't there? Daily battles that await us until the time of V-Day. V-Day for the Christian is the return, the bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we saw last week that all of us are born again into a combat zone. We're born again into a combat zone with a dangerous enemy. But that dangerous enemy has been mortally wounded by Jesus' cross and his resurrection from the grave. Now, how was he mortally wounded? Well, the ground of his dominion is our guilt. That's where he has his power. And Jesus Christ took the guilt away by his cross and his resurrection. And yet, until the day, the enemy who has been mortally wounded is still very dangerous. Because as Revelation says, he knows his time is short. And that brings us to our adversary of the warfare. We see this in verse 11, but just again, for context, Paul says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So this war, this battle will only be won in the strength of the Lord's might. Put on the whole armor of God. Here it is, that you may be able to stand against the schemes, and the word there is methodia, the methods, the schemes, it's plural notice, of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul here He's already mentioned the devil, but here he's referring to the devil and his demons. Demons are the fallen angels. These are spiritual beings who sinned against God after they were created. Of course, Scripture doesn't tell us when they were created, but they are created beings. And, and they followed the devil and his rebellion against God 
and his holy angels. And, and Paul identifies uh, the, the devil and his demons with this fourfold use of the word against. Notice that word against. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but notice against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, some, and, and, I, and I tend to believe this, think that this, this verse here represents four different classes of beings who served the devil. Uh, there does seem to be some kind of class here, different classes of, of demons. There does seem to be some kind of rank among them, but we can't speculate. We can't go beyond that. That's all the text allows us to do. If you go beyond what the text allows uh, you to say, then you're not trusting in the sufficiency of Scripture. This is all we need to know about these demons who follow the devil. But having said that, there's at least three things we do know definitively from our text. First of all, our enemy is powerful. Notice this language of rulers, authorities, powers, and forces. They are called powers. So this is a powerful enemy. Um, of course, Paul is not denying Jesus' victory over them. He has, Paul says in Colossians 2 that he has, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He, he triumphed over them. But this does remind us that they have not yet conceded. After Hitler was defeated on D-Day, he knew his time was short. His back was broken, but he did not concede, right? And it's the same way with the devil and his demons. They are powerful. The second thing we know from this text about the devil and his demons, they are wicked. I want you to notice that language here. Spiritual forces of, notice, evil. They are wicked. They desire to spread wickedness. Now, William Spurstow in 1666, so even back in the, uh, the, the 17th century, they're dealing with these things just as Paul was dealing with them in the first century. He gives six reasons why the devil is so effective at wickedness and spreading his wickedness. He, he writes this in a work called The Wiles of Satan. First of all, he is effective at wickedness because of his, he is a spiritual being and he has great intellectual power. And because he's a spiritual being, he can pray on our spirits. He can pray on our souls. He can pray on our minds. The second reason he's so effective is because of his experience. Over the centuries... He has mastered the art of wickedness. William Jenkins said, He has an apple for Eve, a grape for Noah, and a bag for Judas. Of course, you pick up those references. And he knows your vulnerabilities. He tailor-makes his methods 
for your vulnerabilities, for your weaknesses, for what the writer of Hebrews calls your besetting sins. Those sins that you tend to, to commit consistently when you are not walking in the fullness of the Spirit. The third reason he is so effective at spreading his wickedness, Satan's tireless energy for promoting evil. He has tireless energy. He is one track minded. He has one goal, to kill, steal, and destroy. There's an old Italian proverb that says, Lord, deliver me from a man who has but one business. Well, let me just tell you, the devil has but one business, and that is to kill, steal, and destroy. Hitler knew the war was over, but he was going to wreak as much havoc as he could in his evil, in his wickedness, until the war officially ended. A fourth reason that he's so effective, he has an army of demons. He has an army. And we see the different classes of here, though we don't want to go beyond that. You see here uh, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Uh, Joel Beakey uh, writes that every demon unitedly, so they're on the same page, Every demon unitedly promotes Satan's doctrine. Satan has a doctrine. Distinctions, domination, and distractions. Every demon unitedly opposes God's position, precepts, purity, and people. All right? So there's a whole army united for this cause. Fifth, Satan's evil suggestions are almost indistinguishable from our corrupt desires. In fact, sometimes, in fact, I would say all the time, it's virtually impossible to distinguish the corruption of your deceitful desires and the devil's activity in those desires. And so you have this desire and you go, I'm only human. God wants me to, to, to follow my heart. And we reason that way. And that brings us to uh, the sixth reason that the devil is so skilled at spreading his wickedness. He's skilled at matching his suggestions with our corrupt reason. And I would venture to say that's why we have to read our Bibles. And that's why we have to be in worship because Every thought we have, apart from the renewed minds that come from the Word of God, is sub-Christian. Our reason is flawed. It is fallen. It is polluted by sin. And he is able to match his suggestions with our capacity to reason in this fallen way. You know, there's a term that many of you are familiar with today called confirmation bias. 
And the principle is this, that we tend to gravitate and take in information that already confirms the way we believe and the feelings that we have. And the devil knows this. He knows this well. And so he works with our pre-existent sinful desires. He's, he's like a kid with Play-Doh. He's working with something that he already has. He merely draws on what is already present in us in order to flame our sinful desires. Indeed, we've seen he's powerful and we see he's very effective at wickedness. But third, we know from this text that the devil is cunning. Notice again, he uses the language of schemes. He is very cunning. So what are these schemes? Well, we, we could never be comprehensive here, but it's important that we consider these schemes because Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we should not be ignorant of his designs. We should not be ignorant of his schemes. So what are these schemes? Well, remember first and foremost that he's writing, Paul is writing to a church. And so let's think about this corporately. So consider that verb, walk. Five times Paul uses that word walk. He said in Ephesians 4.1, to, to walk worthy of the calling. In Ephesians 4.17, uh, he says, we're no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In chapter 5, verse 2, we're to walk in love. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, or 5, 8, rather, we're to walk as children of light. And in Ephesians 5, 15, we are to walk in wisdom. All of that within the context of the local church, the workplace, and the family. We saw the emphasis that Paul placed on the family. There is nothing in, in God's revealed plan in, in Ephesians that the devil does not want to undo. There's nothing in God's revealed plan in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that the devil does not want to undo. And so he works in active opposition to the gospel. He hates the gospel. The message of the gospel, the all-sufficient work of Jesus, is his death notice. And that's why he hates the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now let me just say here, if you've never trusted in Jesus, it doesn't matter what you feel or what you think. Remember, your feelings and your your thoughts are fallen. If you have not trusted in Jesus, you are perishing. Paul says that. In their case, he says, the God of this world, and that's who the devil is, he's the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now that's a very important truth. If you have not trusted in Jesus this morning, it's because the God of this world has blinded your spiritual eyes so that you cannot see the importance, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do you do in that case? Well, God is bigger than the devil. You say, Lord, 
The God of this age has blinded my eyes, and that's why I've not trusted in Jesus. And I'm asking you to give me eyes to see, and he will answer that prayer. But the devil hates the gospel, and that's how he attacks the gospel centrally. Secondly, Satan will do all he can do to oppose and disrupt mission endeavors. And because the gospel is the only way for anyone to go to heaven, there's no one going to heaven who's not trusted in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. And as a result of that, the devil will seek to disrupt. And in the next years, the next season of Fisherville, Fisherville has become a much more missional-oriented church. You need to remember the evil one will seek to disrupt the progress that Fisherville has made towards missions. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, we wanted to come to you. An apostle wanted to come to Thessala, as they call it today, Nike, but Satan hindered us. Apostle wanted to make a mission trip to Thessaloniki, and he says Satan hindered us. Now, how did Satan hinder? Paul doesn't tell us, so we don't need to speculate. But Satan hindered an apostolic mission to to Greece. Third, Satan is sometimes, sometimes a source of a thorn in the flesh. Now, in this particular case, it may have been a physical ailment. Not all sickness, not all physical ailments are a result of spiritual warfare. But some are. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Some believe it was some kind of glaucoma, uh, eye problem. We don't know. A messenger of Satan to harass me. So sometimes he is a source of a thorn in the flesh. Fourth, and this is important for every church, and there's no church that's an exception to this. He infiltrates the church and plants within it his own. There's never been a church that this didn't happen. In Mark 13, Jesus said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. He sows the bad seed. And one of the reasons we require new members classes so that we can hear the uh, potential members' testimony is that we need to vet anyone who wants to join the body of Christ. That's why uh, before we baptize anyone, we have to hear the testimony. And for our younger people, we take them through a class because we understand this truth. Fifth. The devil promotes false doctrine. You know the devil is a theologian, and he has his doctrine. He has his theology. Uh, it has infiltrated the Southern Baptist Convention for sure. When you bring in philosophies that are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God is sufficient uh, for growth in godliness, for the knowledge of God. We don't need any alien system, but that, I believe, is the work of the devil. 
Paul says, 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says, now the Spirit is saying this, that in later times, we're in those later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The demons have a theology. The devil has doctrine. And we need to be always aware of that. We test everything by the word of God. The word of God is all sufficient authority for any theological claim. Sixth, he steals the word when preached. And so the word can be faithfully preached, and you can even hear that word. But the devil is good at stealing that word after it's been preached. Mark 4, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. That's one of the reasons I'm te I teach my students at the school. Every Tuesday when we meet, or Monday, we pray that the word that was preached on Sunday would be protected from the evil one because he steals the word. You can hear it faithfully, and then if you walk out that door, be aware there's spiritual warfare involved. Seventh, he incites persecution. 1 Peter 5, be sober, minded, be watchful, be diligent. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, get this, that the same kind of suffering are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so he incites persecution. I believe it's coming. I believe it's coming to this country. But remember, uh, he's already been defeated. And God has given us the resources to walk in that victory. Eighth, he attacks our thought life. He's really good at that. We've already seen he's a spiritual being. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Your thought life matters. Paul says if your thoughts are led astray, you will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Your thought life matters with regard to devotion and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this sermon is kind of a, a, a compilation of lists in some ways. I've done a lot of reading in spiritual warfare, and I think it's a very important principle uh, and, and, and truth that we need to consider. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, in his book, Precious Remedies, about Satan's devices, says with regard to our thought life, Satan works in two primary ways. So Paul has just said in 2 Corinthians 11 that there is a real potential that our thoughts are led astray from a pure devotion to Christ. And Thomas Brooks tells us with regard to our thought life, he works in one or two primary ways. Temptation 
or accusation. Now, let's talk about his temptation arsenal. Now, Thomas Brooks gives a bunch of these. Let me just give you a few. He shows us the bait, and he hides the hook. That's one of the primary ways he tempts us. He shows us the bait, and he hides the hook. In other words, he shows us the short-term pleasures of the bait, what Hebrews calls the passing pleasures of sin. He shows us the passing pleasures of sin, and then he hides the long-term miseries. How many men and women have been lured away by the excitement of that new relationship outside of marriage. The passing pleasures of sin, the devil hides the long-term miseries. And with every adulterous fair or any other kind of rebellion, there is horrific long-term miseries. Second, he tempts us by getting us to rationalize our sin as a virtue. Isn't that interesting? That's why we need to read the Puritans. They have great insights. He gets us to rationalize our sin as a virtue. I'm not greedy. I'm just a steward. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just social. I'm not lustful. I just appreciate beauty. I'm not a gossip. I'm just concerned. I'm not a slanderer. I am zealous for truth. That's what the enemy does. He gets you to rationalize your sin as a virtue. Third, he tempts us by overstressing the mercy of God. You say, well, how can you overstress the mercy of God? In one sense, you can't. His mercies are glorious. We sang about that this morning. But remember, God is not made up of parts. His mercy is also a holy mercy, a just mercy. And and so you can overstress the mercy by ignoring his other attributes, like his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. And so... We overstress the mercy of God when we think, I'm going to commit this sin because I know God's going to forgive me in the end. Fourth, by making us bitter over our struggles and over our suffering. I've suffered so much, I deserve this. And that's one reason so many powerful, successful people have affairs. In fact, we had a very well-known apologist who died in the last couple of years. And and there has been alleged information coming out about him. And one of the things he would say to his uh, mistresses was, I have suffered great for the gospel. I I deserve this this particular um, act. Fifth, by showing us Showing believers how so many bad people seem to be having great lives. Obedience doesn't seem to pay off. Look at how the the wicked prosper. That's one of the ways he tempts us. 
Playing by the rules doesn't seem to pay off, does it? Of course, we see many in the scriptures who struggle with that. Read Psalm 73 sometime. And he struggled with that until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord and he saw their end. He saw the end of the wicked. Sixth, by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. So I'm, I'm really faithful over here. So I can kind of can, can, uh, sequester this part of my life from me. I need me some me time. And so you compare one part of your life. I'm, such, I'm a provider in the home. Um, I, I'm loving and, and, and I am a good neighbor. And so having one little area over here that you just can't keep for yourself that's not under the lordship of Christ. Paul says that is, or we, uh, Brooks would say that this is a temptation from the evil one. That's how he works by temptation. How does he work by accusation? We'll be brief here. So he works by temptation, essentially by getting us to overstress the grace and mercy of God. But he works by accusation as well where we forget about the goodness and the love of God, all right? Uh, First of all, by causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. Brooks says, for every look at sin, you should look five times to the Savior. So when you get fixated on your sin, all that's going to do is lead to more and more sin. Second, by causing us to obsess over past sins that can't be undone. And I think that is a principal way we see today. Uh, I, how many people have I counseled with who just cannot get past a sin they committed in their history that they cannot move past? Forgetting that every sin that you've ever committed as a believer was nailed to the cross. Your guilt has been taken away. Third, By making us think that the troubles we are going through must be punishments from God. Let me just tell you, if you're a Christian, the punishment has already been rendered in the Son of God. Now, we we can be under the discipline of God. We are disciplined by God as His children, but we're not punished by Him. The punishment took place on the cross. And so every time something bad happens in your life, you just think that God is punishing you. Well, that's just bad theology. And that's why we don't use the language of punishment in our home. Our children are our children. Uh, We're not punishing them, but we do discipline them. Fourth, by making us think, and I have had this often in my life, and maybe you have as well, that the inner struggles and the inner feelings that we have clearly reveal that we're not a Christian. How could a Christian feel this way? How could a Christian think this way? These are the accusation arsenal of the devil. Now, why all this time on this? It's recognizing the plans and the capacities of our foe that sober us to our responsibility. He is real, and he is active. He is wicked, and he is powerful, even as he has ultimately been defeated. 
That brings us to our activity in the warfare in verse 13. Paul writes, therefore, in light of what I just said, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. He assumes that you can so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so though we may focus on the specific parts of the armor, and we're going to do more of that next week, Paul first wants us to remember that this armor comes from God himself. Why? Because only spiritual weaponry prevails against our foe. Our foe is smarter than us. He's more cunning than us. He's more experienced than us. He's more powerful than us. So the chief responsibility, this is remarkable to me, and we saw that from a few texts in Old Testament last week, our chief responsibility in the warfare, notice, is to stand. In fact, uh, he uses that word stand in verse 11. Here he uses it two times, and in verse 14 he uses it. We are to stand in the armor. So what does it mean to stand? It means to hold one's position continuously. Now, this is not a let go, let God. We have responsibility in our standing. There are 40 commands in Ephesians. We saw that early in our study. There are 40 imperatives in Ephesians that we as Christians are responsible to obey. But we stand in our armor under the lordship of Christ in full obedience with our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our motivations, and our actions. We stand in our armor. Of course, to stand means that we live, in one sense, in peace because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And yet, on the other hand, we live and we guard and we make ourselves always aware of our enemy because, he says, notice, the days are evil, the evil days. What are the evil days? It's an age, an age that we live in that's been invaded by the age to come, the kingdom of God. He's already spoken about these evil days in chapter 5, verse 16. Now, we recognize that not every day is equally evil. He describes the days as evil, but there are certain days where you are tempted more than other days. There are particularly evil days that we experience. And yet, even though not every day is equally evil, Paul says we never rest self-sufficient. And now Paul's going to lay out six pieces of armor. We're going to look at one today. We're just going to look at one, and then we're going to observe the Lord's table. And these six pieces are necessary for standing in the evil day. And the first one we're going to look at in verse 14, our armor in the warfare. Notice verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Now Paul is alluding to Isaiah 11. And Isaiah 11 
the prophet Isaiah speaks of a stem from the stump of Jesse. Now think about a stump. A stump is a dead tree, right? Stems don't grow from a stump. But a stem is going to grow from a stump that Isaiah calls Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, right? And and so a stem is going to grow. And here's what it says in Isaiah 11, 4 to 6, in the Greek translation which Paul was using. With righteousness shall he be girded around his waist and with truth bound around his side. He's speaking about the Messiah, the stem from the stump of Jesse. And so Paul's metaphor, and we're going to see this more clearly next week, reflects the concept of the Lord as our Messiah, as our divine warrior king. He's fighting our battles as we stand, in other words. Now, having said that, we have responsibilities. Again, we talk about this all the time. God is sovereign. We're responsible. We're responsible agents. And our responsibility is not an illusion. It is real. And so we're to put on the belt of truth. It's the foundational piece of armor. Now, the belt um, played a critical role function in the Roman soldier's armor. Um, it's the belt where he, he kind of uh, tucks or places his scabbard, his, his, his knife, his sword. It was also the belt where he would tuck in his tunic so he would have freedom of movement when he was encountered by the enemy. And, and so imagine a soldier without a belt. It would have been impossible to win that battle. He's good as dead. Now, there was an old Discovery Channel show called Mythbusters. Uh, maybe you guys remember the show Mythbusters. But one time, there was a, a deputy on there named Sean Osborne. And, and um, they featured him because he'd been in a gunfight. And his belt buckle deflected the bullet that would have ultimately killed him. It was shot at close range. And his belt buckle deflected that bullet, saving his life. And and I shared that image to give us a vivid kind of metaphor here because it's no understatement to say that this is true of spiritual warfare as well. No belt. If you wear no belt in this battle, which he calls the belt of truth, you will not win the battle. You will go down. You will not persevere without the belt of truth. Because apart from the Lord, Satan is the most powerful, brilliant mind in the universe. He's not omniscient. The Lord is omniscient. But he knows more than you. All right? He is smarter than us. And so human wisdom, human reason is not sufficient to withstand him. We say this all the time. You expect us to say it, but it's true. If your Bible is closed, you're mincemeat. You're mincemeat. Because what is the belt of truth? Well, if you'll notice, he's already talked about the truth in chapter 1, verse 13, uh, when he says that in him... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you're sealed with the Spirit. So there the truth is the gospel of your salvation. We never move past the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 20, 
Paul has written, and we saw this, that that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth that is in Jesus. And so the belt of truth, Paul seems to be saying, is all that we know about God and his gospel as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so let's get practical here as we close this out. When the devil would tempt you to be discouraged that the world and all the afflictions that come from from living in a fallen world come down on you, put on the belt of truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting our way, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Before this light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Put on the belt of truth. When the devil brings temptation and you believe you cannot resist, put on the belt of truth. By the way, he, he generally uses false happiness as bait in temptation. Put on the belt of truth. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When the devil conspires to make you face opposition, and every Christian will face that if you stand for truth in this culture, put on the belt of truth. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? When the devil accuses you and rubs your sin, rubs your nose in your sin, put on the belt of truth. Romans 4, 5, he justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. So if you feel ungodly, congratulate yourself. You're qualified for justification. When the devil tempts you to grow content and satisfied in your walk, And let me just say this real quickly. He is far more likely to dull your affections over a decade than to destroy your soul in a day. Keep that in mind. He will dull your affections over a decade. When you grow satisfied, put on the belt of truth. Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight And the sin which clings so closely, let us run with the endurance, the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the Father, the founder, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. When the devil causes you to doubt your salvation, put on the belt of truth. John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed over from death to life. Yes, we need the armor of God. The foundational piece of the armor is the belt of truth. We're going to take our hits. But there is not a sin that plagues us. There's not a battle that plagues us that can't be put to death with the weapons of the word of God. Spurgeon said, Satan will attack you sometimes by force and sometimes by fraud, by might or by slight. 
He will seek to overcome you, and no unarmed man can stand against him. You need to believe that. It's true. No unarmed person can stand against him. But the armed Christian, the person of truth, you're invulnerable. Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you will or can prosper. Why? Because our victory is grounded by the victory that we saw at D-Day, the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the great means to celebrate this victory is the table. And so we're going to come here, and what a wonderful way uh, to begin and end a service. The G Lord Jesus gave us two ordinances, and we, by his grace, are able to observe both ordinances today, both reflecting the all-sufficient work of Jesus, which is our D-Day for the Christian. For those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we would invite you to participate with us upon a couple of conditions. You can't come to the table unconditionally because, first of all, it's a table for Christians table for believers. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and you are a baptized member in good standing of a church that believes that gospel, we would invite you to partake with us here at the table. But before we observe the elements and partake of the elements, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. Father, we believe that even the table is an act of warfare. It's a pronouncement to the enemy, the serpent, that his head has been crushed. That the seed of the woman, those in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, are more than conquerors. And it's the more than conquerors who are gathered here for this ordinance, Lord. Lord, we know that the, the supper is a church's act of communing with our Lord Jesus, our warrior, and communing with each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of the bread and the cup. But we believe also there's an individual aspect to this as the believer's act as well of receiving his benefits and renewing our commitments to him, the Lord Jesus, and his people, thereby making the church what it is, one body, marking it off from the world. Father, before we partake, we pray your spirit, by your word, would illuminate to us, convict us of any sin we need to confess and repent of before we partake. We know the Lord Jesus Christ, as we, we even sang this morning, Sin has been doubly cured. We've been saved from wrath and we've been made pure. And, and we just ask you right now, Lord, that you would show us any sin we need to confess. Sin that's already been punished and pardoned. Sin that needs to be daily confessed and repented of. Lord God, the bread that we're about to partake of is symbolic of the human body, the real human body 
in which Jesus dwelt incarnate among us, sinless, for some 33 years. And Lord, when he was punished, when he was crucified on the, tro- on the cross, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would seal this to our hearts as we eat this bread representative of his body broken for us and our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. The double cure, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we know you as a God of mercy because of the new covenant sealed by the blood of our Lord Jesus. And we drink this cup in remembrance of his sacrifice for our sins. And we ask even now that in Jesus and by your spirit that you would commune with us as we commune with each other, the body of Christ, with thankful hearts, we drink this unto our Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Amen. He took a cup. When he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. We've heard from the word of God today. We've seen that the enemy uses uh, many different methods. One of them is to steal the seed, to steal the word from your heart. My prayer is that you go today, that you would commune with God, and that you would recognize that your responsibility is to stand, to stand in the armor, the belt of truth, because the enemy is real even as he is defeated. And there may be some here today that have never trusted in Christ. And so this is hard to say, but it is absolutely the case. Your God is the God of this world. Paul describes him as the God of this world, and you are of the world, and you're under the judgment of God. And that sounds harsh, but recognize he is a God of grace, a God of mercy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, will never perish, but have everlasting life. If you will trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven, and you will be set free from the domain of darkness, being transferred into the kingdom of the son of God's love. All you have to do is repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And I would love to talk to you as we stand and as we sing.